Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us with clarity, that we may know what you've said. We pray that as we think upon the text and the book of John, that we would learn what you've said so that we may live accordingly, according to your standards, that we may love you, that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now as we um, begin, I want to just give you a little review where we left off last time. Last time we were answering this question, are spiritually dead sinners able to believe in Christ unaided by God? And we came to the conclusion, at least I did biblically, that no, they are not. And then what we did is we defined what does it mean that people are are spiritually dead? And remember in the box we defined spiritual death certainly as separation from God, as evidenced from Isaiah 59. But we also saw that it involves moral inability. Now, the reason that was significant is we distinguished between moral and natural inability. Remember, natural inability would be the idea that God is speaking only Chinese to people who only understand English. And so we're just completely incapable of understanding what he's saying. Well, that's not exactly what the Bible reveals. As evidenced in Romans chapter 10, Paul said God has not asked us to do anything impossible. He didn't ask us to go into the heavens to bring Christ down. He didn't ask us to go down to Sheol to bring Christ up from the dead. He asked us simply to believe. And the implication is belief isn't something naturally impossible, but it is morally impossible for people who hate the gospel. And that's the problem with spiritual death. Every person born in Adam is morally opposed to the gospel so much so that they will never believe. That's why it says in Romans 8.8 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that's one of the passages we looked at to prove our assertion. Okay, well now today I gave you a little bit of a reading assignment to read John chapter 6. Perhaps some of you did and perhaps some of you forgot about that. But I want to talk about two passages in John chapter 6. What I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a lot of time showing you that the Arminian interpretation, Arminians are those who believe that all people are able to come to Christ because they all have been regenerated by this prevenient grace. So the reason some come and some don't is because some choose and others don't. I'm going to show you that that reading of John 6.44 and John 6.37 is untenable. So let's begin by talking a little bit about John chapter 6. How many in here got a chance to read John chapter 6? Oh, many of you did. Well, let me just throw the question out there. Is there something from Israel's past, historically, that Jesus seems to be reliving in John chapter 6? I know Bob knows this, um, but what's that? The manna. Yes, the manna. And Levon, where does the manna... Where does that come from? What big story in the, in the Old Testament? It's, it's the Exodus, correct? So Jesus seems to be recapitulating or reliving the Exodus. And evidence of that is, you remember in the opening verses of John 6, it says Jesus went across to the other side of the sea. So he goes, what was it, to Tiberias? Right? So he travels across the sea. So there's a sea crossing, just like there was in the Exodus, And then where does he bring the people in John chapter 6? He brings them to a wilderness setting where the only way they could be fed is if they receive the bread that he gives. Now, when else did that happen 
in biblical history in the Old Testament. Well, it happened in the Exodus. God has the Israelites cross the sea. Then he brings them to a wilderness where he alone has to feed them. And what does he feed them? As Levon said, it's the bread that comes down from heaven. And the whole point of John 6 is Jesus is going to be playing off of that idea of the bread coming down from heaven. Just as in the Old Testament, God physically fed his people supernaturally by sending them bread from heaven. Jesus is now going to be claiming he is the the bread sent from heaven by the Father. And if you will feed upon him, which is a metaphor for belief, you're not just going to have physical life here and now, you're going to have eternal life. And evidence that this eating of the bread of life is indeed belief is John 6.29. Why? Because remember the Jews, as Bob rightly pointed out, they wanted to make Jesus the king bread maker. That's what they were excited about. Why? Because many of your hours, waking hours, as an Israelite living in the ancient Near East, was spent trying to put food on the table. But all of a sudden, they find this miracle worker who can give them bread. So they want to make him king, and they want to be able to do this sort of work so that they can have bread always. But Jesus says, this is the work to do the work of God, that you believe in the one who the Father has sent. That's the point. If you believe in the bread of life that comes down from heaven you're going to have eternal life. Now, the reason I unpack that is in John 6, 44, Jesus is going to be showing them that the reason many of them don't believe is because it is impossible for those unaided by the Spirit that is not drawn by God to believe in the Son. And that's exactly what he says here in John 6, 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there's three parts of this verse that I want to unpack. We're going to go segment by segment. The first portion is, notice in red where it says, no one can. You've all heard me said that the term can here has to do with ability, not permission. The verb that's used here is dunamai. It's the term that we would get eventually in our English for dynamite. It has to do with power or ability. Okay, so Jesus realized what he's saying. He's not saying no one has permission to come to me. He's saying no one has the ability. Okay, now what's the condition for someone to come to Jesus? He says no one can unless what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Does everyone see that? Now, I'm going to unpack this drawing here in a little bit because I'm going to talk about how the Arminians try to react against drawing. They'll try to say this is just a wooing. So therefore he woos all people and those who choose to come are saving themselves in a sense. They're adding to their salvation. Those who choose not to come, well, that's their own choice. So salvation is a human choice. I'm going to show you that that's not what that drawing means. Okay, it has to do with a compulsion that is, is, in fact, let me just cite Kittle. This is Gerhard Kittle, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. He defines it to compel by irresistible superiority. I'm going to show you that's exactly the case. But I also wanted to show you right after the underline, notice where it says, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
that is the consequence of the condition being met. This is exceedingly important to the interpretation of this text. The implication is if you are drawn, you do come to Jesus, and therefore what? You're going to be raised up on the last day. That's an implication of this text. What does it mean to be raised up on the last day? Are you raised up for damnation or for salvation? It's for salvation. Now, we know that every single human being one day is going to be raised, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. So unbelievers are going to be raised for the explicit purpose of being put into the lake of fire. However, that's not Jesus' point here. Being raised up on the last day is exclusive to having eternal life. How do we know that? Well, in context, that's how Jesus used this earlier, this phrase, and later. Turn your Bibles to John 6.39. John 6.39. This is just five verses earlier. Notice what Jesus says, John 6.39. He says, This is the will of him, that's the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. So stop there. He's talking about those that five verses later are drawn. He's talking about the elect. So all that the Father has given him, he will lose none of them, meaning what? They're not lost, they're, they're saved. What does he say right after that? He says, but raise it up on the last day. So all that the Son is given by the Father, he's not going to lose, and they'll be raised up. What does raised up there mean necessarily then? It means salvation. Okay, turn your Bibles to John 6.54. John 6.54. Now here Jesus is using the metaphor of he who eats and drinks his flesh and his blood. Now, Catholics have tried to take that and say, aha, we should believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation. That's not Jesus' point. He's using a metaphor known to us because in John 6, 29, Jesus is very plain. The will of the Father is that you believe. If you want to do the work of God, you believe in the one whom he sent. So eating and drinking, the reason he's using that is because he's talking about him coming down as the bread of life. So the eating and drinking is a metaphor for belief. Just as when Jesus says, I am the door, you don't think Jesus is really a door? I thought he was, yes, truly God, truly man, but I didn't realize he was a door. We know that's a metaphor. He says he's the shepherd. He's, he uses all sorts of metaphors. So notice the point here in John six fifty four: he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, metaphor for believing, you're partaking of the bread of life by belief. What will happen? He says, I will raise him up on the last day. He has eternal life. Notice it says explicitly, he has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Why is that important? Let me pull up my pointer. We see that that phrase, raise him up on the last day in John 6, has to do with eternal life. So get a load of the logic. What you're going to see is the Armenians are going to claim that God draws all people. That's the Armenian way around this verse. Yes, God draws but he draws all people. If that's true, what happens to those who are drawn? Well, they're saved. If the Arminians are correct in their interpretation, it leads to what? 
universalism. Everyone is saved. If all are drawn, all are going to be raised up on the last day, meaning they're all going to have salvation. So certainly then, we have to come to the conclusion that God does not draw all men. You either become a particular part, someone who believes in particular. <laughs> I couldn't say the ist on the end there. The idea that God draws a particular group of people, or you become a universalist who believes that all people are saved. That's the quandary that I think the Armenians are in. Yeah, are, are in. Yes, Brian. <clears throat> you've, you've talked in the past. Is this working? Oops, sorry. Um, You've yep, talked you in the go. past about the about the falsehood of the term the yeah. prevenient grace. A prevenient, a yes. Prevenient grace, meaning first and, grace. And that's the uh, that's that's where everybody has the ability. So you're uh, you've just refuted that whole uh, thing. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> I don't have a cough switch like we do up at the front and the upstairs. You're exactly right. Thank you for making that connection. So many of you remember that I talked about how Armenians believe in something called prevenient grace. And the prevenient just simply means first. And they believe this first grace is necessary for people to come to faith in Jesus, but they believe that it's been given to all people. And so they would see, as Brian is rightly pointing out, that this drawing is that prevenient grace. What I'm showing you is that if that's given to all people, then all would be saved. So therefore, the Arminians are not correct. Yes, Norm. So in verse 65, verse 65, it gives the condition then of why you would come or why you wouldn't come because it says, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come unless it has been granted to him. So unless you've, unless you've been granted the privilege to come, you can't come. Very good reading, Norm. Excellent. Thank you for pointing that. In fact, I'm going to come to that verse in the next slide. And the reason why, Norm, I love that, that you found that, because notice in that verse 65, it's unless it's been granted. That term is didomi. And it means given or granted, just as you read there. It's also used in John 6.37. What I'm going to show you is that that given or granted is synonymous with the drawing. In other words, if, if, if the Father draws you, it's synonymous with him giving you to the Son in John 6.65. And I'm going to show you the importance of that in just a bit. So very good reading. You're exactly right. Thank you. So let me try to give you the Arminian understanding of this passage. And I'm not going to give you straw man arguments. I'm going to give you the best arguments that they have. I did um, way more time reading Arminian arguments than I wanted to this week and looking at them online. And I've done a lot of research into how they try to understand this text. So let me give you their two responses to our interpretation of this verse. Number one they'll claim that the drawing here is a mere wooing. So it's not as if God is somehow compelling someone, in a sense by force, overcoming the bondage of their will to enable them as dead sinners to finally believe. It's not that he's merely wooing like you would a five-year-old with a cookie. And the five-year-old 
normally will say, yeah, I like that cookie, or maybe he likes donuts, and he says, no, I don't. But it's just a wooing. Now, what I'm going to show you is the wooing idea is imported by the Arminians who want to obfuscate the clear meaning of the text. And I'm going to prove that to you by doing something in hermeneutics where we're going to look at how the term is used by John in the same book that he's written. Okay, so if you ever want to know how does the biblical author use this term elsewhere, look first of all in the same book. So if you're ever going to do a word study, here's a hermeneutic tip. Find out how the, the if, John's, if we're studying John, which we are right here, understand how John uses it in that book. Then look elsewhere in his other writings, like 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Then look at how other New Testament writers use it in the New Testament canon. And then you can even go to the Old Testament. But that's how you should do it. What matters most is how John uses it. So here's, let me give you the definition of this term, elkuo in the Greek. Again, from Gerhard Kittel. This is a theological dictionary of the New Testament. By the way, Gerhard Kittel puts out an abridged version of the theological dictionary in the New Testament. It's one volume. The original set, Bob had it, is what, 10 volumes? It's huge. It's huge. We have it on our computer, so we don't have to lug that around. But years ago, before computers, they abridged it by this Gerhard Kittel, and it was called Little Kittel. So if you had the abridged version, it was Little Kittel, and if you had the big version, it was Big Kittel, right? Well, listen to what he says. He says, quote, Elkuo means to compel by irresistible superiority, unquote. Now, is Kittle just saying that because he has some theological axe to grind? No, it, comp- it comports with the evidence. Let's turn our Bibles to John 18.10. And could someone read that for me, please? John 18.10, um, if someone has the mic. Uh, Carly, could you hand it to um, Norm? Would you mind reading that for us? Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Very good. So here you have Peter drawing his sword. The verb there, when it says he drew the sword, that's Elkuo. Now, do you think that Peter was wooing his sword out of his scabbard? Or was he, as Kittle says, compelling it by irresistible superiority. I think it's the latter. Okay, now let's look at another example. John 21, 6. This is where they're fishing. This is a miraculous thing where Jesus shows them his divinity again in his resurrected body. John 21, 6. Could somebody read that one? Uh, Brian, would you mind reading that one? And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. The verb haul is elkuo. Now, when these fishermen are hauling in the fish by, with this net, do you get the image in your mind that they're wooing them to come? Or are they dragging the net in? As Kittle would say, by irresistible superiority. It's the latter, isn't it? It's not wooing. It's compelling by irresistible superiority. Okay, 
Those are the instances in John. Let me just read you one. Um, by the way, I'm summarizing. Acts 16.29, Paul and Silas are dragged, el cuo, same verb, before the authorities. Were they being wooed before the authorities as they're being persecuted? No, they weren't being wooed. They were being dragged. Dear brothers and sisters, the drawing isn't a wooing. It is, as Kittle said, a compelling by irresistible superiority. In this text, we have the doctrine of irresistible grace. If you are drawn by the Father, you do come to the Son, and you will be raised up on the last day. So, again, the Arminians have to say, well, drawing doesn't really mean that. It just means wooing, and God woos everybody. Well, as you see, that's not a likely understanding of drawing. Okay, the second thing they do with this text, again, is they try to claim that God draws all men. Okay, as I mentioned earlier. Now, where do, this, where do they get this idea that God is drawing all men? Well, if you watch them on the videos on YouTube, the Arminians will make fun of Calvinists, say, oh, these Calvinists, they don't understand how to read their Bible. Don't they realize just six chapters later, in John chapter 12, Jesus says that he draws all men to himself. Well, Jesus does say that. In fact, turn your Bibles to John 12, 32. But I'm going to show you that all here does not mean every individual person, man, woman, and child. But it means all people without distinction, whether Jew or Gentile. And I'll prove that to you exegetically. So John 12, 32, notice Jesus here says, and remember, this is during the Passover. That's the setting. He says, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now, what you, if you go on YouTube, you will hear Arminians say, ah, the Calvinist can't read this text for what it says. All means all. And the Calvinist has to say all doesn't mean all. And therefore, we're playing fast and loose with the text. They'll spend a lot of time on that. But do something for me real quickly. Because they make fun of us believing that all is less than every individual human being, and, and you'll see this Arminian after Arminian after Arminian will do this on YouTube, turn your Bibles to Titus 2.11. Titus 2.11, because they mock us saying, well, all doesn't mean all to the Calvinist. And we can just, they say, take this in a straightforward way. Well, let's look at Titus 2.11. Here, Paul is giving instructions. And he's actually, in context, giving instructions to bond servants being subject to their own masters. Notice in Titus 2.11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to gather today. We don't have to be engaged in evangelism. We can just pack it up. Why? Because the text is clear. We don't have to preach the gospel. God's going to save all men. After all, the Arminian says all always means all. So God, according to Titus 2.11, in the Arminian interpretation, would have to save every single person. Well, of course, we know from Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, and few find it. And broad is the path that leads to eternal destruction, and many enter in through it. So we know that Jesus is telling us 
that the vast majority of people are not seeing. So what do we do with this text? Yes, LaVon. I get confused because, um, like in the Old Testament, it warns over and over, you are to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Don't add to it. Don't delete from it. So why? I don't understand. Why does it, the Bible use the word all when it doesn't mean all? Yeah, very good. No, Levon, that's very good. The, the Bible uses a lot of language in which we have to interpret it in context. So, for example, when we looked at the idea that we were to eat and drink on the Son's flesh and blood, if we take that literally, we become cannibals. But if we understand it in context of John 6, we know that it's a metaphor for believing because he's playing off of the bread of life. The people physically lived if they ate the bread in the wilderness. Now if you believe in Jesus, the bread of life, who's come down, you'll have eternal life. Well, in the same way, context tells us sometimes all means all, irregardless of Jew or Gentile, irregardless of whether you're wealthy or poor. It's that sort of idea. In fact, notice in Titus 2.11, notice just a few verses earlier, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about you bond servants or bond, uh, bond slaves, you be subject to your own masters. So the point just ver- two verses later in Titus 2.11 is that God is saving all men irregardless of their position, irregardless if you're Jew or Gentile, irregardless if you're a slave owner or you're a slave. That's the point. The same thing is found in John chapter 12. Because just 10 verses earlier, there are Greeks who are coming to Jesus. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will. And I'm sorry, Bob, you have something? Go ahead. Well, just to answer, LeVon. Yeah. This is not something that you have to know some secret to read the Bible. All language works this way, including ours. It's just common human language. Context, And we use figures of speech and we use things in non-literal ways. And... We know that because we're so conversant in English and talking to each other. So-and-so held a party and everybody came. That's a great analogy, yes. Okay. We don't sit around and think, oh, now you're playing fast and loose with the word everybody. Because we know some people didn't go to that party. We would immediately realize that we're saying this was very successful. And people showed up, and it was, it was good. And this is how language works. Our language works that way. Our communication works that way. It's just as the biblical languages do. And once you become familiar with how language works, it, this isn't even odd. Yeah. Okay? So what you end up with it, earlier in my life, the reason I had to change my theology yeah. was that I had agreed to teach verse by verse through the Bible. Yes. And I was either going to understand things the best I could and be consistent or give up the plan of teaching verse by verse through the Bible. Right. Because if I remained an Arminian, which is what I was, I was going to have to give up the plan. Yeah. Verse after verse after verse, I couldn't teach. I couldn't teach. I couldn't teach. I had to skip Romans. I had to skip most of John. 
I had to skip Romans 9. Yeah. And I couldn't do that because then I, would, I was failing the church. I told them I was going to teach verse by verse of the Bible. I can't, I can't fail because I, then I'm failing God. And if God said it, I need to know what he said. So then once I switched, I just said, well, what does it mean here? And does this integrate with everything else? Yes. And I found that I didn't have to play fast and loose with anything. Amen. I could forthrightly, with confidence, teach the whole counsel of God. And it didn't mean swearing allegiance to Westminster Confession. I don't do that. Amen. Because they do the same, the Calvinists do the same thing as Eric's already proven. Yeah, that's exactly. With their eschatology. Yeah. So the word... Whether all is literal or figurative, it depends on the context, as it is in English. Well said. In Acts, it says the whole city came the next week. Well, we don't take Luke literally because the whole city wouldn't fit into the living room. I love your analogy, Bob. Let's, let's take Bob. So, Bob, you probably invited people to a party or two. What if Bob said, everybody's coming to my house tonight? We know in context, Bob can't literally mean every person in context. But there's times when Bob is preaching and he says, everyone is going to come to the judgment seat. Everyone is going to be held accountable to Christ. He means everyone. And the context tells us the Bible works the same way. And if we have contextual clues, Levon, that show us that all doesn't mean every individual, but all irrespective of whether you're Jew or Gentile, and remember how big an issue that was. That's a huge issue in the New Testament. Okay? Now, let me show you a contextual clue in John 12, where all means all irrespective of Jew or Gentile, not just every individual person. Yes, Norm. Well, one more verse that really, to me, explains who all men are that God is calling. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Revelation 5, 9. <clears throat> it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book <clears throat> and break its seals, and thou for thou wast slain, and thou didst purchase for God with the blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So there's, there's the group. There's the group. That's all. All without distinction. Doesn't matter if you come from Zimbabwe or Russia. Doesn't matter if you're from Israel or the United States. Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, male or female slave nor free, but all are one in Christ Jesus as he says in Galatians 3. Amen. Well said. That is a great verse. And written by John. Very good. Very good. Well, that's exactly the point in the immediate context. Very good reading. That's exactly right. Um, turn your Bibles to John 12, 20. So let me just show you the context because, again, we want to understand in John 12, 32, does all mean every individual human being? Or does it mean all, irrespective of whether you're Jew or Gentile? I think it's the latter. Notice in John 12, 20 through 21, and by the way, this is coming right after the Pharisees are expressing angst because the whole world is coming out to Jesus. And they use that phrase, the whole world. Well, then in John 12, 20 through 21, it says, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So what's so angering to the leadership of Israel is, yes, the whole world, even Gentiles now, are coming up to see Jesus. 
And in fact, in John 12, 20, these Greeks who are Gentiles are coming to say, we want to see Jesus. And all of a sudden you see Isaiah 49, that this suffering servant who was going to be a light, not just to the Israelites, but to the Gentile nations, the Goyim, is coming to fruition. It's coming to fruition. And this is why in John chapter 10, verse 16, two chapters earlier, Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of my fold. I must bring them in also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Well, who are the sheep of another fold who he has to bring in? He's talking about the Gentiles. By the way, let me just give a quick time out for a moment. This week as I'm putting this together, it was at night and it was on a Tuesday. Anyone ever heard this show called uh, Last Call with Walter Hudson? Well, I heard on that day, I was driving, and it was on 11.30 a.m. I like to listen to Rush Limbaugh during the day. Don't hold that against me if you don't like him. But I was listening to him, and they had announced that there was going to be a couple of emergent pastors on. Well, Bob and I, you know, we've been refuting the emerging church for a lot of years. Well, I wanted to hear what this guy said. He took John 10.16, where Jesus says, I have sheep of another fold. And he says that means that Jesus is going to save people of other religions. So it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or you're a Muslim. Well, that's not what Jesus' point is, is it? That's how far the emerging church has gone. They're just universalists now. Okay? But Jesus is referring to Jews and Gentiles. So that's exactly the point in John chapter 12. Gentiles are coming to him, and that's why in John 12:32, when Jesus says that he will draw all men to himself, it doesn't mean every individual but it's Jew and Gentile. That's what was so shocking. That was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's the context of John 10, John 12. That's the point. Just as Titus 2.11, salvation coming to all men, doesn't mean every individual, but as Norm read in Revelation 5.9, written by John, it's from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the kind of all. Yes, Judy. I'm sorry, we'll get a um, mic on you, so. I think you've taught before that all can mean, in general, a category, correct? I'm sorry, say it again. I'm sorry. I think you taught before that all can mean a category. So all men is a category. Mankind is a category. Exactly right, Judy. We talked about that in 1 Timothy. And in the context... The, the context had to do with Paul talking about how he was an apostle to the Gentiles. And so when he talks about God desiring to save all men, it wasn't a desire to save every individual. That's probably the best reading. It's that it's Jews and Gentiles, that it's all kinds of men. It doesn't matter if you're a king. It doesn't matter if you're a lowly worker. What matters is if you come to faith in Jesus, which he which he calls and enables. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Brian, and um, oh, you got your own mic, sorry. That Walter Hudson side note that you had, that is so unbelievable because at the time that this was written, there wasn't, there were no Muslims. There, there were no, there was Jews 
and there were non-Jews, okay? There, there right. was no, you know, 50 other religions out there. So for this guy to take that so far out of context, it's just disgusting. Absolutely well said. You're exactly right. They're, they don't believe the Bible. They're playing games with us. That's right. Okay, I researched this. I went to their conference. I talked yes. to their leaders. I debated one of their leaders. Now this Enneagram it's the same thing. We've done some more research. Richard Rohr, the Catholic monk ecumenist, is a panentheist. Yes. Okay, so they believe that God is in everything and that God is part of the whole, which is evolving into paradise without a future judgment. They don't believe anybody's judge. So it doesn't really matter. In fact, Rohr is praising Buddhism and Ken Wilbur, the Buddhist philosopher, and Henry Nguyen and all of these people, the mystics, one and all. So they think they don't have anything close to a biblical worldview. Exactly. And so when you deal with the panentheists, what you have to do is assert that God created the world out of nothing, so history has a beginning, and that God will bring judgment and judge the world. And actually, there'll be a conflagration of, you know, the destroyed with fire. And that some people are saved, some people lost, and there's a recreation, a new heavens, a new earth. If you assert things yeah. that we've always believed and put them right there, I did that in my debate. Yeah. He, he was, Doug Padgett was just turning red. Yeah. That's right. He told somebody heard him tell one of his followers, I want to tear that guy's head off. Yeah. Uh, he didn't say that to me. Um, but the point is, they don't believe anything we do. So they go on these TV shows and talk with Christian terms and use Bible verses. Yeah. They don't believe the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God, right. and which is alone binding authoritative for truth and doctrine and salvation. They don't believe any of that. That's right. They're playing games. They're playing with us. They're tickling people's ears. They're sounding pious and sanctimonious. They believe nothing. Do you believe anybody's actually going to go to hell? You got to nail them to the corner. Well, no, we don't believe there's a hell or a future judgment. That's right. They'll tell you if you, but you got to know what they're doing in order to ask the right questions. Amen. Well said, Bob. Let me, let me just build off that real quick. This is a quick aside. So what Bob and I found was that the root of the emerging church is a man named Hegel. So Hegel believes in spiritual evolution. Because God is in creation, he's drawing all things to himself, there's going to be no judgment, otherwise God would be judging himself. Okay? In Christian theism, we see a distinction between the creator and the creation. So God, therefore, isn't going to be judging himself. He's judging his creation. But they're pantheists. Now, let me make the connection. Hegel has a spiritual belief. Karl Marx was his student. Karl Marx materialized what Hegel taught. So do you ever wonder, why is it that people in the emerging church are typically in the Democrat Party? The Democrat Party are Marxists. Okay? Hegel is their spiritual father. Hegel was the instructor of Marx. So what you have now in the left-wing emerging church is the spiritual arm of the Marxist party. 
So the Marxists now have a religion that they can believe in. So that's what you're seeing is this, just as in a sense you had a Republican Party, you had a conservative evangelical base, the Democrat Party now has what they call evangelicals, but they don't believe the Bible. What they really are are followers not of Christ, but of Karl Marx, and by extension, Hegel. That's why they're believing these things. So this left-wing move and the emergent move in evangelicalism is why it's becoming more and more difficult to elect conservatives. There's less conservatives going to be elected because more and more evangelicals are being duped by Hegel and Marx. So just a quick aside. Now, let me come back to this issue then. What I've just shown you in John 12, 32, because of the inclusion of the Gentiles, all has to do with all people, whether you're Jew or Gentile. That's the point. So here's the question we want to wrestle with this text. God draws all people or does he draw only some? Arminianism stands or falls on this question. All right, so it stands or falls really on two issues. The first issue is, is this drawing resistible or irresistible? What I'm claiming from the text of Scripture is that it is irresistible. Why? What's the result? The consequence of the Father drawing you is that Jesus will raise you up on the last day. And I'll make this more clear on the next slide in John 6.37. If that's the case... Arminianism is done because Arminianism says that this wooing, remember they're saying drawing is wooing, has to be resistible. It must be. If it's irresistible, Arminian's done. Arminianism is done. That's what I'm showing you. You don't have to go any further. John 6.44 does it. And if, in fact, God draws some rather than all, Arminianism is done. It's that big a deal. And again, what I showed you in the logic of this text, if God draws all men, well, then all are going to be raised up, therefore saved on the last day. You're left with universalism. So John 6.44 cannot be interpreted as the Arminians claim. Arminianism is done. Now, let me make this more clear from John 6.37. John 6.37, seven verses earlier, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. First of all, notice in the underlying portion, all that the Father gives to me. Very important phrase to iron down. This is my claim. That phrase that you see in the underline, all that the Father gives me, is synonymous with the Father drawing you. It leads to the same thing. If you're drawn, you end up being raised up on the last day. You end up becoming part of Jesus' flock. And if you're given to the Son, you belong to Jesus, his flock, and you'll be raised up on the last day. Now, let me prove that to you. John 6.44, we just read that where it said, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Earlier, Norm read John 6.65. So with your finger in John 6.44, put your finger on John 6.65. It's parallel. It's saying the same thing. However, notice there's one slight change. It means the same thing. But notice in John 6.65, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it has been given. 
by the or granted it's the same thing granted or given ditto me ditto me the term that's the term used so John 6:44 John 6:65 are saying the identical thing John 6:44 he uses draw you can't come unless the father draws John 6:65 he uses gives you can't come unless he gives they're saying the same thing therefore the underlying portion here all that the father gives me is synonymous with the father drawing and what's the result of it they will come it's not that they might it's not that there's a possibility they will come they will come it's irrefutable yes bob okay so then when they do come are they doing it willingly or are they being drugged against their will uh, very good point so what we believe from the scriptures is that when someone is regenerated god by his spirit is overcoming their hardness of heart and he's enabling them to believe but they really do believe they really do believe but that belief that ability to finally see the goodness of the gospel the need for the gospel is something that's given to them by god and once he does the whole person changes including their affections desires yes. priorities if Amen. you want an illustration of this yes one of the more profound ones in the New Testament is in the book of Acts, and that's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Because it yes. gives us a lot of details. Yes. Now, not everybody's ex- as extreme as that. Yeah. Okay. But, very good point. But when we when the term irresistible, please don't get that wrong. It doesn't mean that eventually God drags you kicking and screaming into the church and forces you to sit there. <laughs> right. People do that with kiss. <laughs> okay. That's right. <laughs> now, it means that he changes us. Now, the reason that's so profound, Saul yeah. of Tarsus, because yeah. he hated yes. Christians. Right. He, he was hating to love him. He was breathing out threats of slaughter against the disciples. He was persecuting Christ. Yes. And he was in that state as he was going to find more of them. Yes. And confronted sovereignly and supernaturally by the resurrected Christ. Amen. So Paul did nothing but resist the gospel continually. Yes. And he gets right to that point and he says, Who are who are the King James is when I first learned it? Yeah. Who art thou, Lord? Right. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks, it says in the King James. Yeah. And the, the word there means our ox goad. And so the, and then the conversion was so profound that Paul never again kicked against the goad. Right. Never again. Never again. In fact, he went and obeyed and waited. He went blind, yeah. waiting for somebody to come and pray for him. And he was baptized. So you see, conversion is God changing us from the inside out so that we love what we used to hate and serve whom we used to not serve. We used to serve sin, self, and the devil. Amen. Now we're serving Christ and and gladly serving alongside of his people, which Saul of Tarsus did. And people had to be convinced to do anything with him because 
they they were afraid like Ananias. Well, he he wants us dead. Right. Am I supposed to go pray for him? Yes. Well, don't worry, he's one of ours. So there's a conversion that shows. Beautiful. See, the Armenians here irresistible, and they think God actually forces people against their will to be Christians. And then they're just stuck, even yes. though they don't want to be there. Yes. But that's not what's implied. Bob, it's a great analogy. It changes us so that we love what we used to hate. And yes. it can't get us away from the church. Amen. Think about that. Saul of Tarsus murdering Christians, murdering the followers of Christ, becomes one who dies for the name of Christ. Yeah. That's the kind of heart transplant that God does at regeneration. It's something only he miraculously can do. Remember, what is the issue? It's moral inability. We learn that in John 3.19. Even though the light comes into the world, men love their deeds of darkness, don't they? What changes that? Where you love the light more than the darkness, it's regeneration by the Spirit. Amen. That's the inability that God overcomes by the power of the Spirit. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 12.3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except what? Except by the Spirit. The Spirit enables you to finally see morally the gospel is something you want. That's the heart transplant that God does. So notice the logic in this text again, though. If God draws, remember I'm saying drawing and giving is synonymous. If he gives all men to the Son, well, then all would come. None would be cast out. And you'd be left with universalism. That is the only alternative to our reading. The Arminian reading of the text would necessarily lead to universalism. So if you don't want to be a universalist, you have to reject their reading. That's the point of John 6.37. Remember, all of Arminianism falls on the, or stands or falls on the question, does God save some men? I'm sorry, does God regenerate some men or call some men? Or does he call all men? If God calls all men, then the Arminians have a point. But if we just learned in John 6.44, as we've just learned here in John 6.37, it can't be all. It has to be some. Otherwise, you're left with universalism. By the way, earlier in John 10, let me just cite this. John 10.26, Jesus says to the Jews who didn't believe, he explains why they didn't believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, you don't believe because you chose not to. They did choose not to, but they were not of his sheep. And then Jesus said one verse later, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. There's a distinction between the sheep who hear Jesus and those who aren't of Jesus' sheep, they'll never hear Jesus. The difference between the elect and the non-elect. Okay, let me sh further show that God draws only some. Remember, Arminians claim that God draws all men. And because he draws all men, it's called prevenient grace. The reason some men respond by faith and others don't is they're exercising their free will. So ultimately, <laughs> salvation then is dependent upon the man. It's not on God who regenerates. It's upon the man who chooses. Again, think of the analogy. There's a shipwreck. Everyone's on the shipwreck. That's the way life is. The Armenian conception is people are drowning. They're flailing. And as the lifeboat of Jesus comes over, they have the power to reach up. What I've been showing you is no. Everyone is drowned. We're already dead floating in the water. 
And when the lifeboat comes by, Jesus reaches down and pulls dead corpses into the boat and breathes them the breath of life. That's salvation. Now, in order to refute Arminianism, I'm showing you that God does not give prevenient grace to all men. He does not draw all men. Here's a text that clearly shows us that. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is speaking in parables to the people of Israel, but he pulls the disciples aside and tells them plainly what the parables mean. The disciples catch wind of this. They see this probably over and over. So they ask one verse earlier, Jesus, why is it that you tell them in parables, but then you will pull us aside and tell us as your disciples plainly what it means? Jesus' answer, Matthew 13, 11. He says, notice in blue, to you it has been granted. There's the term didomi again. Same term when the father gives them to the son, didomi. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So if the Arminians were correct, it would have to be granted to all men. That's the definition of prevenient grace. Is it given to all men? No. To you it's been granted to know. To them it's not been granted. That refutes the idea of all. It's very clear, isn't it? But by the way, let me just reiterate this point. The term granted, didomi, is the same term we, use, we saw used by John in John 6.37. It's the same term. All that the Father gives me. Okay, it's the same term. Same one used in John 6.65. No one can come to me unless the Father gives them. Right? Same term used in Matthew 13.11. Granted. To the disciples it was granted to know to the others, it wasn't. Arminianism is not correct. Prevenient grace is a doctrine that's made up by the Arminians. By the way, it's the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, according to the Council of Trent. They anathematize, say, cursed of hell is anyone who believes what we do. If you believe what the text of Scripture is saying, that in fact God only draws some men, you're anathematized, by the Roman Catholic Church. So the question is, why would Arminians want to line up with the Council of Trent and the Roman Catholic Church at this point? No, Calvin was exactly right on this point. And I've shown you, I had a whole slide, we spent days showing you where we disagreed with Calvin. But all of a sudden, we have a book that's put out by one of our discernment ministries, and they have a problem with Calvin. And the only issue that they have with him is the issue of election where Calvin was right. And so do you see then discernment comes from understanding the biblical texts, what they say. We have to understand the whole. We also have to understand the individual verses. What are they saying and what are they not saying? Let me leave you with this. Salvation at the end of the day is God's will, not ours. Remember, we saw this in John 1. People who will receive Christ, remember in John 1, 12, he says, as many as received him who believe in his name, receiving and believing are synonymous. And he says, who are, what, saved not by the will of man, but by what? Whose will? But God's. 
We see the same thing here in Luke 10, 22. All things, Jesus says, have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Does it matter the will of man in salvation? Or does it matter the will of the Son or the, of God the Father? It's the latter, isn't it? It's God who determines who is going to believe. Why? Because every single human being, left to their own devices, love their deeds of darkness. They're morally culpable for that. I was. I remember for years prior to my conversion, I lived for the devil. I didn't want Christianity. And one day on a park bench out at Crystal Airport, God used a German Luftwaffe pilot. He flew a Ju-87, a Stuka. He fought against us in World War II. And just a week earlier, I had seen an airplane crash. And in that airplane crash, I had actually gassed the airplane. It was a Cessna 310. And it was a very painful experience because it was a family going out to South Dakota to buy a little puppy. So their five-year-old was in the back, the wife and the husband. I gassed up the airplane, and they lost control on takeoff. A thunderstorm had come through, and there was a gust front, and the pilot didn't correct for the crosswind. I saw it. I was on top of a ladder gassing one of our airplanes for the flight school, and I watched him take off, and I saw him lose control, and he crashed, and the airplane hit a propane tank, and it blew up. And so I saw, I went from seeing this family alive, excited, living, going to get a puppy, and I had to go over to the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board and FAA. Inspectors came out, and I was 19 years old when it happened, and when I went over there, I saw their bodies were bent back, and they're all charred. I just want you to think about the impact this had on me as a 19-year-old, a 19-year-old who's living for the devil, who thinks he's going to live forever, as many 19-year-olds do. And all of a sudden, I saw a little five-year-old, and I don't mean to be graphic, but it's, it, you have to have the... His uh, head was popping, the cinders of it. Popping. Like you would at, if you're at a fire and you're roasting marshmallows. And at that moment, I thought, I will not get out of life alive. And I wanted to know what was true. Well, I started reading the Gospel of Matthew, and I started looking at some of the prophecies that were in Matthew. And I started realizing, well, wait a minute, some of these prophecies seem to be pretty stellar. It seems as if God knows the future. And I started reading the Bible, wanted to know what was true. And I didn't know if the Bible was true or not, but I wanted to know. A week after that, a German Luftwaffe pilot came out and gave me the gospel and a heart transplant. Right then and there. Why? Because, not because Eric Dauma is so great. Because he is. Because the son chose to reveal to a 19-year-old sinner what salvation is. That's the power of what God can do. He did it for me, and he can do it for anyone whom he chooses to reveal the power and the truth, the glory, the grace, and the mercy of the gospel. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your grace and your mercy. It's new every morning. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that you revealed the truth of who we are as human beings, that we're dead sinners in Adam. 
but that through your divine and powerful grace, you have the power to overcome our hard hearts and lead us to faith in your Son, where we have everlasting life. We thank you for this truth. I pray, Lord, if anyone hears this, that they also would be converted, that they would repent and trust Jesus all by the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.